Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode my guest is Jared Dubin, talented writer at 538 and elsewhere, and we had a lot of interesting topics to go through, talked about some of the injury issues that are around the league right now, especially Chris Paul, and how to handle those going into the stretch run, plus the complicated Eastern Conference playoff picture, Jared's new piece at 538 about player introductions, which I found really interesting, and my thoughts on... Chet Holmgren, I went to USF Gonzaga, so Jared wanted to ask me about that. We talked about it a little bit. And this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. You can check it out. And you, if you do, use the promo code CLNS50 to get started. You get an awesome welcome bonus for doing so. You'll hear more about that later on. Podcast runs about an hour. Really enjoy it. Hope you will, too. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. The All-Star break is always uh, kind of a challenge to think about, like, where do you want to go? Because there are so many different things, especially in the recent years now that the trade deadline is before it. So it's like we're kind of going to wait to see how the dust settles with all that. But thinking about this past week, I think that the... I'm not going to say it went under, like, unappreciated, but I think underappreciated is just Chris Paul's injury and what will be a prolonged absence. Six to eight weeks is the current projection on it. And there are, I mean, there are a number of different tentacles about this, like whether it affects the Suns' positioning, whether it affects their playoff viability. But I mean, at a basic point, Chris Paul was having this unbelievable season as a key part of the best team in the league. Yeah. Um, and like six to eight weeks, that's right on the border of missing, you know, the rest of the regular season and potentially even some of the playoffs. And obviously his arrival in Phoenix last year was sort of what catapulted them to being one of the best teams last year. And then obviously threw into the finals last year. And they've been so good this year, despite absences from some of their players at various points of the season. And obviously his performance has been a significant, if not the most significant factor in that. And, you know, we were just talking before we jumped on and you had mentioned that you just made him, you know, fifth in your MVP vote uh, for, uh, I'm assuming that was on the, the recent podcast that you and Nate did. It is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would have had him right in that mix too, if I was doing things like, you know, three quarters MVP votes. Um, the thing that's most interesting to me is I didn't watch the game against Oklahoma City last night, but I did see that rather than start Starting Aaron Holiday, they just said, we're going to start Cam Johnson and we're just going to play the best five guys that we have left. And I think that that is a good idea. Uh, I think that it's better for them. Like Booker handles the ball enough anyway. They've been putting more on Mikael Bridges' plate in terms of handling the ball. Johnson has done more handling the ball off the bench throughout this season. I think it's better for them to, A, stretch those guys a little bit in terms of their responsibility on the ball and their playmaking, 
and B, be a little bit bigger. Like Holiday is really small and in a different way than Chris Paul is small. Like he doesn't have the strength or the feistiness that Chris does. He's a solid backup point guard, but I just think it's much better for them to start those five guys and keep Holiday in the backup point guard role that they acquired him for. Yeah, and I can't remember specifically the timing on whether James Jones kind of knew this might be coming when the deadline happened and they got Aaron Holiday, but it's definitely good to have him. And the lingering wrist issues for campaign are another complicating factor here. And for Paul, I'm I'm concerned not so much because of the like the six week part of this timeline, but the eight plus that's typically more of a reevaluation. My instinct is that the Suns aren't going to have a super challenging first round series, though it is possible because the 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 play in could lead to that. There's actually a really kind of wild hypothetical where because of Anthony Davis's injury. The Lakers, it feels to me that the Lakers are relatively unlikely to, to do better than ninth, assuming like maybe Paul George comes back or just because we'll, we'll see. But like if the Lakers get ninth, then if they're kind of whole at that point, the best seed they can get in the actual playoffs is eighth, which would mean probably they would play the right. Suns. So we could get that rematch with Chris Paul making his way back or potentially, hopefully not, still being out. Yeah, um, and it's not like there's a guarantee that he's going to be, you know, Chris Paul right yeah, when he comes back. Yeah, and this back, is this is know? his right his thumb on his on his primary hand. Like this isn't uh, yes. a minor a minor appendage. Right, and he's had thumb issues in the past, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering correctly. I don't know if it was the same thumb or the opposite thumb. I don't recall that either. To be to be completely frank. Yeah, uh, but I so his uh, fracture is an avulsion fracture, which basically means like a piece of the bone chipped off. And I had the same thing um, when I was in, co- in um, I can't remember if it was when I was in high school or college, because I broke each thumb one time, Jeez. and I can't remember which one was the regular break and which one was the avulsion fracture. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's painful, but it's not like it's not like you're hindered from doing that much. You just have to you know keep it in a cast so that the bone fuses back together. Which makes the timing of it kind of a challenge because you, you I, I, as I understand it, it's one of those things where like you, you can't do much until you can. And so right. it'll be the sons and the, and Chris Paul and, and the medical team and everything, thing like that, figuring out when the he can moment be and sort of paralleling the Darius Garland thing, which was bothering me. I mean, we'll have to kind of just see how it goes where they, it looked like the Cavs wanted him to work through this back issue a little bit, which always makes me queasy. He didn't play notably in their uh, their first game out after the break against the Pistons, which they lost. And, and uh, just quickly, I can't remember who it was, but I saw a quote last night from somebody that said, like, we don't know yet when he's going to be back, which uh, is kind of worrisome. Yes, it is. But considering Joe Varden had that it was a, that it's a muscle issue and that the only way to really solve it is rest. To me, Cleveland is in a, I mean, they're 11 games over 500 even after the loss yesterday. Yes, having Darius Garland out for, let's call it two, three weeks is challenging and that's going to lead to them falling in the standings and there's no guarantee that that will make it 100 percent. especially and there's the complicating factor that Karis Livert is also out at the same time mm-hmm. and so you're losing your when you and Ricky Rubio of course is out for the year and traded so it's a challenge and we've seen the Cavs offense really sputter when he's unavailable but for both of these teams and I think the Suns are kind of in a clearer place just because it's unambiguous how good they are and and where they're going and they've you know they made the NBA finals last year so I think they have an understanding of the long game here but 
I'm very concerned always about pushing somebody to come back a little bit early when later matters so much more than earlier. Definitely. This is something. So I was watching um, the Grizzlies Wolves game last night. John Moran had some sort of hip injury late in the third quarter, and it looked kind of bad at first glance. And he limped off the court and he was clearly not right for basically the rest of the game. But he played the entire fourth quarter after going to the locker room and spending several minutes back there. And he was kind of like tearing up the Wolves defense on one and a half legs. Like he was clearly limping everywhere. But then he would just hit the Jets and get into the lane. And I was just like, why are we doing this? You know, like the the Grizzlies are in good position. They're going to most likely finish second or third um, in the conference. And it's just like John Moran is so much more important to them than this game against the Timberwolves, which they went, ended up losing anyway, you know? Right. And it's just like, why? I, I understand that guys want to play. Like, obviously, John wants to play. I'm sure Darius Garland wants to play. I'm sure Chris Paul wants to play. Like, he just played in the All-Star game, even though he had a broken thumb. Um, but it's the team's responsibility to save these guys from themselves and prioritize the things that are more important. And, um, you know, I, I think that the Grizzlies probably should have done that last night. You know, we'll see if there's something a little bit more serious than just like basically they just said he was sore last night, which I mean, I've seen soreness before and I've seen hip injuries before that did not seem like, like soreness. But, you know, we'll see. And I, I agree with you. I, I think it's way more important that Darius Garland be healthy for the playoffs and for like the future than that they win a couple games over the next few weeks. Agreed. And I was thinking about it. It's so weird that all of these injuries that we're talking about have been point guard injuries. I was also thinking about that one. I can't remember which year it was in the playoffs where Kyle Lowry had an ankle sprain. And it looked pretty bad at the time. And this was against the Cavs when LeBron was there and he played through it. And then he, you know, his ankle was bad for like the next five days. And it probably would have been shaky anyway, but it, you know, putting more, putting more pressure on it at that moment when it was at its weakest is can lead to some, some ramifications. And they lost that. I believe they lost that game the Raptors lost almost every game to the Cavs when they played them in the playoffs over the over <laughs> those years but the I and I'm so deeply pro player empowerment in almost all facets but in this facet I am not like the the idea that they want to be out there they want to compete and sort of like they the tension between a coach and a general manager because they have different priorities different visions of what should be the key thing that's what at at times when they're not aligned that's what medical staff versus player is where the player wants to be out on the court the medical staff might agree with them or they might not and that's why you need to lean on the medical staff because Mm -hmm. you're paying them that is their entire job their entire job is to assess the situation and to to do to make the right decision and they're not going to be 100 percent, just like they aren't in terms of identifying injuries or the right course of action but that's why you have them. Well, it's also the coaching staff's job to protect players from themselves. Sure. This is something where – so um, R.J. Barrett tweaked his ankle um, a few games before the end of the first half of the season when he was in the game when the Knicks had been down by 20-plus for the entire fourth quarter, and they were down by like 19, and it happened with like 10 seconds left in the game. And it was completely ridiculous. He shouldn't have been out there for most of the fourth quarter, and he shouldn't have been out there with less than a minute left. And, you know, Tibbs did his usual Tibbs thing about, you know, how, you know, you got to try to win the game and blah, 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 blah. But it was a game that they had clearly already lost. And they asked the Knicks beat writers asked RJ about it yesterday. And he was like, I always want to be out there. Like, it, it doesn't matter. I'm 
I can't put any blame on him because I wanted to be out there. And it's just like all the players want to be out there. The point is that the coaches and the front office have a responsibility to save them from themselves. Like Tibbs should be smarter than having RJ Barrett in the game when they're down by 20, whatever, with 17 seconds left, regardless of whether or not RJ wants to be out there. And then he wouldn't have this ankle issue that caused him to miss the last few games of the first half. And if I'm remembering correctly, I know he practiced, but I think he's still listed as doubtful for their first game of the second half tonight. So it's going to be, you know, multiple weeks that he's out. And it's obviously, you know, much different than the injuries that we're talking about that are potentially going to affect the playoffs or even the championship with Chris Paul, but it's the same principle. It is the same principle. And interesting, I just saw this now is just looking at looking at some news and Mike Gancy, who just got promoted, said on Friday morning as we're recording this, that what Darius Garland is dealing with is a bone bruise in his back. So (laughs) that's not great. Yeah, probably be a good idea to give him some rest. And he didn't play, but but that might be severe enough where they kind of have to make the right decision. So although we've seen, by the way, we've seen guys play with like fractures in their back. We have. Um, You know, it's it's a little bit different, but um, Tony Romo and I can't remember the other quarterback that played with like transverse process fractures in their back. Which obviously football is even more have at some point. Steve Young played with a lot concussions, like a thousand of them. Like, yeah. But, you know, we've seen even uh, basketball players do the same where they've played with back injuries. But it's it's more serious generally with big men and the back injuries than with guards. But, you know, we've seen that linger for guards for a while. Like we saw Steve Nash's career essentially end because of a back injury. You know, you got to take that stuff super seriously. I want to transition to the Eastern Conference, and there's some uncertainty in the West, especially we've seen Dallas come on and Luka being himself, but the East feels like such a complicated mess right now, in part because some (laughs) of these teams are complicated messes, and in part because there are, you know, there are reasons to believe that the, the, you know, the samples that we have for some of these teams aren't necessarily representative, you know, like the, the Bucks had that short, had that absence where everybody was out at the beginning, the Heat have had a lot of absences, but it looks like they're pretty close to hole right now, and partially because the combination of the teams being close enough where this really matters, all of the top seven seeds in the East are within five and a half games of each other, and then the team in eighth is the Brooklyn Nets, who might be Kevin getting Kevin Durant back in about a week, and also because the stakes are really high. We don't know exactly which seeds are going to be better than others just by virtue of who are you going to face and all of that fun stuff, but... There's a lot at stake, and the ripple effects after this season could be huge too, because let's say, theoretically, and this is far from guaranteed, that the top eight are the top eight, pretty much all good teams, a lot of teams with a lot to look for, look forward to, half of them are going to lose in the first round, and then another two are going to lose in the second round. Yeah, I mean, we're guaranteed to not see at least one of Chicago, Miami, Philly, Milwaukee, or at least two of Chicago, Miami, Philly, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and Boston in the second round. And that doesn't even account for the Cavs or the Raptors or, you know, the Hornets or the Hawks if they make it in. Like, you know, we can only get four teams into the second round. There's another thing with the East where basically everybody has somebody important out right now. Like the Bulls have been missing a gazillion guys all year and they still have Lonzo out. The Sixers haven't had James Harden back yet, although I think he's playing. He, he is going to um, play Friday night. Yeah, Milwaukee has had guys out all year and also like only had Brooke Lopez for the first game of the season. Cleveland's got Darius Garland out now and Karis LeVert out. I guess Toronto or Fred Van Vliet had been out at the right before the All-Star break, but he played in the game. I would imagine he's going to play. Um, and then obviously Brooklyn has um, 
SKD out and Ben Simmons out and even Charlotte has Gordon Hayward out and Atlanta has John Collins out. Like we haven't seen these teams be their real selves for most of the year with the exception of Cleveland and I guess Boston and Toronto in in recent weeks has had more of its guys back but a lot of these teams haven't been themselves and that's why it's difficult to judge them like especially now the the Sixers and the Nets have essentially completely revamped their teams in the middle of the season and the Nets are obviously a different team when they play at home than they are when they play on the road like they keep getting these home games where they get blown out by like 30 points another one last night against Boston um, and that was happening again before the break like they just don't have enough guys when when they play at home right now there's also the dynamic of just the teams like whether whether you think things are going to just continue the way they have, n- not only just for like where seating is, but also how teams have played over the last month. I mean, we've seen this scorching stretch from the Boston Celtics. We've seen Miami. I think they're I think they're coming on and if depending on how healthy they are, but I, I think, you know, when they when they've had their personnel, even honestly when they haven't had their personnel, they've been super impressive. And everybody being so close, my instinct is that that's going to lead to these teams pushing even harder in the regular season just because you don't know what the advantage is going to be, but you can be pretty sure that there is one, even just having home court. You know, that that is that is significant. The three seed is more desirable than the five seed, even if you end up face, you know, there might be circumstances where the six seed is strong, but you can't really know that for sure until probably the very end of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds right. I want to talk about Miami, by the way. Mm-hmm. I was somewhat skeptical of them before the season as a regular season team. I Agreed. just didn't think they were going to have enough depth to 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 be, you know, a top half of the bracket team. And obviously they've, you know, more than weathered that. And they've had stretches with, with Bam out, with Jimmy out, and with Lowry out, and they've done just fine. And that, like I'm much higher on them now than I was at the start of the year because it looks like they're going to get it, it, not that they're going to get favorable matchups. It doesn't look like there necessarily are any, but it doesn't look like they're going to have to go through the plan at least. And that, you know, lends itself to them being able to use like, you know, a seven and a half, eight man rotation in the playoffs, which is where I think that they built for anyway. The Miami Heat, as we're recording this podcast, have played 59 games this year. Jimmy Butler has missed 19. Kyle Lowry has missed 13. Bam Adebayo has missed 25 games so far. And yet they are 38 and 21 and they are fifth in the league in cleaning the glass net rating. And as you I mentioned heard, um, on Zach Lowe's podcast that he did before the all-star break that uh, Lowry, Hero, Butler and Bam have played 59 minutes together this year. Wow. And they are a half game back of the one seat. As you said, the Heat's resilience for injuries, like the, the, I thought I thought there were two things that really concerned me about them as a regular season team. One was they have a lot of players that have missed time in their past, you know, like in Jimmy Butler, you know, as great as he plays when he's healthy, he ha- he has missed some time in modern years and they have a, they've had a they have a couple other guys who have missed time and I didn't think that they had the depth to maintain that. I believe Derek Spolster was a great coach, and that is borne out again. And I wonder, so you so you have guys like Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent and Max Struess who have really exceeded expectations. And I I'm super impressed. It makes me think more of more highly of the coaching staff in the front office than I already did, which is stunning when you consider the successes that they've already had together. But I also have this weird idea, which is sort of the it's the reverse that also confirms the prior where it's like, well, okay, how much 
is Miami going to be leaning on those players in the playoffs? So it definitely helped them get position. And I mean, now you have options, you know, like you can lean on Struess or Vincent if or Caleb Martin if you need to. But I, so I'm like, well, maybe they're not going to help. But then I go back to, well, I already thought they were going to be a good playoff team. So that part yeah. doesn't necessarily, like, so it, it, you could argue that it won't help them as much, but it doesn't need to help them as much because they're already good. Right. We, we were already confident in their top, like, six, seven guys in a playoff setting. And now it seems like they might have, you know, eight or even nine. Like, I, I think that Martin is a guy who makes a lot of sense in the playoffs just because you need to be flexible. And that almost always means more like six, five to six, nine wing type players on the court. And of that group, he's the one that I feel most confident in on both sides of the floor. Like Gabe, Gabe Vincent is a little small. Strews isn't necessarily a great defender, but I feel pretty comfortable with, with Martin on both sides of the floor from what I've seen from him this year. Um, I wrote something for 538 before, like at the midway point of the season, we did like our mid season awards and basically we had him as the top value in the league because he was on a two-way contract and he had you know produced something like two war already by, by that point and it was like ridiculous how much value he was providing above what you'd expect based on his contract and i think last week they converted him from a two-way to a regular contract they and did. it was extremely well deserved absolutely well deserved and i i I liked both Martin twins when they were with the Hornets. And generally speaking, as you and I have discussed and many of my other guests over the years, it's like you kind of you make as many bets on wings as you can. And Charlotte, to their credit, they have a ton of wings. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, they you know, they gave up, quote unquote, on, on Caleb Martin. And I was surprised that they let him go. But they did have a metric ton of other options. And unfortunately for them at the moment, a couple of those guys are hurt, which is leading to some depth issues, including Cody Martin. Including Cody Martin and Jalen McDaniels has missed time. And then uh, Gordon Hayward has these ligaments in his, I believe it's his left ankle, that are a concern. Mm. So yeah, that's a, and with the heat, the other weird element of it is like, I'm super impressed with this season from them. And I thought, I guess, maybe that what a heat, an impressive heat regular season would do was make me feel more confident about their weaknesses as a playoff team, which is primarily their half court offense. I don't think it's necessarily done that. I, I don't, I'm not thinking of this, though they're, you know, the functional depth is good. And also Kyle Lowry keying more of a transition offense for them means something actually similar to Kyle Lowry's former team, the Toronto Raptors, where if you can run a little bit more then you're in your half court offense a little bit less. And so it becomes less of a concern, though teams get less out of transition in the playoffs because everybody's busting their ass to get back. Yeah, and I don't think their half-court offense has been great, um, if I'm remembering correctly. I haven't looked at cleaning the glass today. But I, I, if I'm like, I, I, have, I have the stat on it. So they're 13th in the league right now, uh, filtering out garbage time and half court offensive rating 95.6 there. And they're about middle of the road in terms of proportion of plays in the half court as well. Yeah, um, if I'm remembering correctly, at the beginning of the season, it was better than expected and it's gone down a little bit. But more minutes from Butler, Bam, and Lowry in the playoffs and presumably Hero in the playoffs and just those combination of guys actually playing together would make it a little bit better. It's still a concern, I think, if you're not like at least a top 10 offense. I think it's hard in the playoffs. Um, and that pushes me in the direction of, of teams with better offenses. But they're so good at everything else 
that maybe they can overcome it. Like we've seen teams like, you know, Toronto in a few years ago, they weren't the best half court offense team. Um, and then the year after when they were defending their title and then the Lakers that season where their half court offense was an issue for a while. Um, and then kind of wasn't for, you know, most of the bubble in the playoffs, but it's, it's possible to rectify that issue within the context of specific matchups, but it is something that you do need to pay attention to. It's also too early in the Eastern Conference to start thinking about individual matchups, but I always enjoy the concept of, okay, what kind of team can this squad do well against and what kind of team what kind of personnel would give them trouble and Mm -hmm. i'm excited by the idea that nobody in the east is particularly killer in all facets you know like there there are teams that are really strong on one end that are versatile versatile there but like so the styles makes fights part of this i think is important but also like one example of this is like the chicago bulls and the, the bulls are having this wonderful season they're dramatically exceeding my own expectations a vindication for their front office and demar Rosen has been absolutely awesome i think their biggest defensive weakness to me is against like those dominant wings and you know to a lesser extent like you could even say like the the powerful bigs of the league though maybe you can do some of that with swarming and unfortunately a lot of different teams that they're potentially going to face we don't know the given have those guys yes and uh that's where it would help to have you know Patrick Williams or Caruso back, even though he's a little bit smaller or, you know, have to have not traded Thad Young in the DeRozan deal. Like it's, that is an issue for them. And I think that's why everybody was talking about them trying to get somebody like Jeremy Grant or whoever else near the all-star break or sorry, near the, the trade deadline. And obviously that didn't end up happening. Maybe Patrick Williams can get back at some point this year. Maybe Caruso can guard up a position. Who knows? But I do think that that is the biggest issue for them. I'm 100% in agreement with you. I was also thinking about Giannis, as, as you should, reigning finals MVP, potential MVP winner this year, and what teams can kind of, what teams have decent personnel to slow them down. You're going to have a lot of different theories of the case, depending on who the Bucks play in a given round. Like we've, we've seen Miami succeed and fail against Giannis in each of the last two years. The Sixers would be a fascinating matchup just because of what, what how you want to handle Joel Embiid. And now James Harden is all of a sudden in that matchup. The Celtics. But the team that I'm most interested in conceptually here is the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the Cavs have a very specific personnel philosophy of you know being bigger they have their bigs aren't the thickest in the world but they are good and they have length and they can they can attack the they they have such great contests at the rim and also because the Cavs have played the Bucks three times They've won two of those, albeit one of them without Giannis in the game. And so yeah. that's obviously a different Bucks team that you are defeating. But I, I've i been kind of, I, I think that the Cavs offense isn't there for that to be as great of a series as my brain is kind of saying. But even Bucks on offense, Cavs on defense would make that so much fun. They certainly have a bunch of different options they can try, you know, because they are dedicated to playing so big and... I'm not sure necessarily how good any of those options are. Like, I think Jared Allen might be the best suited to the individual matchup. But then if you do that, that takes him away from what makes him, you know, the most impactful defender on their team this year. And uh, Mobley, I just don't think, has the strength to handle it yet. And, like, that's not a slight. Nobody has the strength to handle yeah, I mean, it. We, we just saw DeAndre Eaton have trouble. So, yeah, like, I mean, the which which team has, like, the guy that can handle it strength-wise? Like, Philly, maybe Miami, if you want to go with Bam or P.J. Tucker. Um, anybody else? I, I would imagine if the Nets play them that it's going to be Ben Simmons on him instead of KD. Like, that seems like 
a sure. significant reason why they went and got him. And I know and that's that probably why they still have Blake Griffin. It's why they still have Blake Griffin. It's why they still have James Johnson. It's why they wanted Andre Drummond. They would just want to be able to throw a million different bodies at the problem if they ever get there. Even Nick Claxton, like, I would imagine they'll try literally anything other than KD so they don't have to do that. And at times it can be, it can be that basic. It doesn't have to be in terms of, you know, who, who's going to, who's going to win it. And I'm, I'm excited to see which of these teams really runs through the tape well, because there's not only is there such a big incentive to do it, but because generally speaking, like, so the idea is, I I remember this has come up before where it's like, you're, there was this, you know, like, okay, who are you, if you're making the finals, how likely is this team to win? And like, especially when it's a very even one, it's like, well, the team that makes it through is the team that's playing really well. And I think it's broadly the same for the top seeds in the East this year, unless there's a late injury, which is a possibility. And so how teams can carry the momentum from this last month and a half into the playoffs will be really important, though I still believe that talent and coaching are more important than momentum, particularly when the top teams are getting about a week off. If I'm remembering correctly, I think there was somebody who did a study where it was like the first 20 games of your season have more of a correlation to playoff success than the last 20 games. I loosely maybe remember rem- that too. It might have been Kevin Pelton. It might not have been. Maybe I'm remembering wrong, but I'm not much of a believer in like carry the momentum into the playoffs kind of stuff. I just think, like you said, that the the matchups and the coaching matter much more. It's Each series is essentially like a new season in in and of itself like you can throw out how they did against basically any other team the only thing that matters is how you succeed or not succeed within that specific matchup sure more with jared dubin in just a bit but first a message from betonline.ag football might be over for the season but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops from all the latest odds totals player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land bet online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get it started. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline is your source for hockey, boxing, UFC odds, right down to the Olympic coverage, which is best in the business. From sports, right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. BetOnline, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play your favorite games. BetOnline line where the game starts. I brought up the idea of ripple effects before and you know that a bunch of these Eastern Conference teams are going to lose before they want to and before maybe some of them expect to. Not necessarily because they are bad or because everybody who thought they were good was wrong just because these are really strong opponents and that idea of you know that every one season but one ends in disappointment you could maybe make a, a, a disagreement for the bubble suns but even at that point it felt like a disappointment though things boded pretty well for them immediately afterwards and i wonder how in an off season where there is less overall flexibility you and i are both collective bargaining agreement nerds how that's going to work so Let's say, I don't know, I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be them, but like, let's say the Celtics lose in the first round. Does that inspire Brad Stevens to make larger changes? Does that inspire Jalen Brown to want it? Or is it more about like how they play during the season and thinking that it's coming? And it's the same kind of throughout the Eastern Conference. And the other place that I think will have those really weird, like refraction, refraction, reflection, I guess it's reflection, not refraction, reflection moments is the bottom of the West playoff picture too, where we had two teams go hard after the 10 seed and at least one of them isn't getting it. It's possible that both of them could not get it. Sure. Like, 
the Blazers are what a game and a half, two games up on both the the Pelicans and the Kings, and and the Spurs um, are plenty good. Like the Spurs are three games ahead of the Kings in the loss column, and I'm not convinced that the Kings are better than them. Pelicans, yeah, I, mean, I think the, are. the Spurs have a significantly better point differential. Like the Spurs are underperforming their point differential by like seven wins or something like that. Like they should be a five. They're essentially even on the season. It's plus point one points per game, and they're twenty three and thirty six, which is pretty crazy. That's a, that's another ripple effect, by the way. If they hadn't been underperforming their point differential by so much, the Celtics probably don't get Derek White. The Celtics probably don't get Derek White, and potentially the Pelicans don't go after CJ McCollum and the Kings don't go after Sabonis. Maybe they do anyway, but if if the biggest difference was that the Spurs were, let's say, even if even if they were just tied with the Lakers, the Lakers are still the Lakers are four games under five hundred. If the Spurs were there instead of thirteen games under five hundred, th- that pushes down the ten spot or that pushes down the eleven pretty dramatically relative to the ten. And maybe those teams don't think they have a fighting chance. Yeah, I mean that's uh, it's a similar. Or, yeah, I mean I guess the Hawks aren't underperforming by quite as much. They're three games under five hundred with a slightly positive point differential. Um, yeah, the cleaning the glass iteration of it is that the Spurs are underperforming their point differential by five point six wins, and I believe that's wins over the course of the season so far, not over the mm-hmm. full season. And the Spurs are, and sorry, and the Hawks are one point six. So one point six is still pretty bad, but it's not as far. And some of the other teams in there, like this, is the we're getting closer to the Utah idea. Before David Locke has talked about this, where 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 they you kind of like at a certain point you can't get to your point differential most of the time, unless you're like all time crazy in the clutch, which if the Phoenix Suns are number one in in net rating and outperforming their point differential by the second highest number in the league (laughs) well that's uh the bulls i would imagine are up there too they're numero uno clutch time to rosen yeah i mean this guy out of control man um i wrote about him earlier in the year and it's i think the degree to which he's improved this season is being overstated a little bit because a lot of the improvement happened in san antonio and just went relatively unnoticed because they were bad the last couple of years but he's even better still this year and the the late game shot making is just outrageous and the fouls that he's drawing on these mid-range jumpers, like, teams got to start fining their guys for biting on his bump fake at a certain point. Someday, someday. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you You had a piece that came out at 538 earlier mm-hmm. on Friday about the something that has been a curiosity to you, which is the order players are announced within the starting five before a game. Yeah, uh, basically what happened is I was watching a Hornets game a few weeks back, and their 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 order of introductions in in pregame just really bothered me like so what they do is they announce Gordon Hayward first Miles Bridges second Mason Plumlee third LaMelo Ball fourth and Terry Rozier last and it's just like why like their their two most exciting players are LaMelo and Bridges those guys are probably their two best players maybe you could quibble with that maybe Rozier is is their second best player I don't know but there's no like buildup of excitement, whether throughout the lineup or at the start and then at the end. And it just kind of bothered me. So what I decided to do was look into how every single team announces their starters uh, in pregame introductions and break them down by best player first, best player last. Um, you know, second best player, first or last fan favorite, first or last, whether they do things in like a positional order, the Cavs, for example, just go one, two, three, four, five. So it goes Garland, Okoro, Markin and Mobley, Allen in their starting lineup. 
And then there's a team like the Jazz. They go three, four, five, two, one. So Gobert and Mitchell are third and fourth. And it starts with Bogdanovich and ends with Conley. And it's just like, again, why? I don't get it. Like, put your best player or, you know, your foundational players first or last, not in the middle, and then have, like, a come down from your two stars to, I love Mike Conley, but, like, he's not the guy that the fans are going to get the most excited about. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? And then there are other teams, you know, like the, the Grizzlies and the Nuggets are a little bit unusual because they have their best player first. Nikola Jokic is first, John Moran is first, and then uh, Jamal Murray and Jaron Jackson Jr. go last. Uh, I would assume that's because those guys were, uh, you know, in, incumbent or Jokic. I can't remember who they were announcing last when he first came into the starting lineup. But um, so he went first. And then, you know, there's teams where like the the Rockets and the Pistons, they they have Cade Cunningham and Jalen Green go first because they had big free agent signings last year who immediately took over the last spot with uh, with Christian Wood and Jeremy Grant. So the rookies now go first. So basically, I just broke down all of the different ways that teams announced their starting lineups and the reasoning behind them. And I got some explanations from different teams, like the reasons that the Blazers have changed their order of introduction over the years or the Thunder or how the Lakers do things this year to try to get their three stars in the order that they want. And uh, it's a kind of stupid obsession of mine, but it seems like at least some other people are enjoying it uh, from the comments I'm getting in Twitter and email and stuff. So I'm always glad to, uh, to share the things that I find um, fascinating for one reason or another that I usually feel are only fascinating to me, but turn out to be fascinating to at least a couple other people. It is definitely interesting and it can actually be, I don't have too much direct information, but I have some secondary one, a complicated thing kind of personally. And and that is the other big factor is like who you are, you start with your best player and go out. It's like, do they have a strong preference here? And then you, you work your way through it. And mm-hmm. there, there are some guys, I think I've heard that if they, if they aren't last, like it seems like almost everybody wants, like there might be some exceptions like John, ja, maybe John ja Jokic are that want to be last if, if they're the guy. Guy. But mm-hmm. then there are other players, and I think Russell Westbrook is one of these, who if he's not last, it's the opposite of Ricky Bobby. It's the if you're not last, you're first. And that is the idea that you that gets the crowd hype. That's the spot like Draymond Green has for the Warriors, for example, which which serves different purposes. I mean, he has g- generally been the Warriors' second best player in a lot of this run, though Clay has been at other times. Well, and of course, Kevin Durant was, or first or second, however we want to do that. But it is... It's something that matters, like it matters to the players. And I wish that League Pass shows the intros a fair amount. I wish they showed them. But then the other one, the one that drives me crazy is I wish National showed them more. Yes, they should be. They should be shown every game. I'm sorry. It's ridiculous that we watch someone sing the National Anthem and we don't watch the crowd get whipped into a frenzy for the home team. Also, it, like, can, it, it can be a fun, it can be a fun way to connect with the experience. Like, you know, you get to, you get to see different ones and, and most of us, and this includes me, honestly, most, most times now don't get to see what other teams are doing for their video package and what, to, what they're doing for the, you know, to get the crowd into it. What songs are they using? All, all of those sorts of things. And it, it's a really fun, like glimpse into it. And also for a league that loves pageantry and atmosphere, mm-hmm. intros like the home team's intro is like the single best thing to get people hyped for, it. and it almost always leads straight into the game. I the thing that really bugs me is when like some teams, what they do is you know they 
do the national anthem and then they cut to a commercial because they got to make their money. Um, you know, you could find a different time for the commercial, but the one that really bugs me is the teams that don't go to commercial. They go to like, you know, the, the studio desk and people like saying something about the game instead. Like you've had a half hour or 40 minutes or whatever in your pregame show to do that. Sure. Show us the introductions. Well, and, and the other thing that makes it different national versus local is that local broadcast, you're assuming people, people are local and thus they have the ability to watch them every time national the games are rotating more so you don't have the same assumption like there isn't a guarantee that this person has watched that many denver nuggets home games now lakers yeah you're probably going to get them a little bit more often considering the star power on the team and the market and everything else but yeah i think that would be it would be an awesome way to get things going and as you mentioned the concept of how do you use that time i will also mention that something i would be pushing for were they to ask my ask my thoughts on it is i think the i I think the opening tip should be earlier relative to the listed start time of games. The I mean, opening tip should be at the listed start time of games. Or to me, like, intro. I think player, you could do it where the intros start at that time. And sure. then, it, then, so then you have roughly three to five minutes. Like, but where you could do what baseball where a does. game is on ESPN and the, the tip off doesn't happen until like 17 minutes after the listed start time. Yeah, I'm sorry. exactly. It's and, outrageous. I mean, I would be completely in support of either what you said or doing what baseball does which is like i mean i know the san francisco giants at least used to be extremely on point on this other teams less so but like this the first pitch time is the first pitch time you know like that's that getting that out there and yeah it's between that and tightening up with some of the reviews and stuff trying to get the game to a more consistent amount of time other than overtime and everything else like there are some small things there that would make the league uh that would make the entertainment product better i mean i think that's one you know Fouls to stop fast breaks is another. There are, and there are a few others that are just seem like really low-hanging fruit. Yeah, um, just make the fouls to stop fast breaks an automatic ejection. That's where I'm at at this point. It's, <laughs> it's, it's diluting things so much that I'm at the point where I think we should just throw guys out of the game. If it's if it's two shots in the ball, they won't do it anymore. And that that's how, it, you know, the, the common term has been Eurofoul, and Nate and I, I think, were part of that, though we did not originate it. And Europe got away, got got out of it by fixing it. And the, they've, the NBA has done it in the G League. It is, if they don't do that again this year, I'm going to be belligerent. And also, I think, personally... I I think that it's not good to make rule changes during the season. I firmly agree with that. However, I would make an exception for that if they wanted to start it for the playoffs. I mean, they could have done it at the All-Star break or something else where it's just because it doesn't change. It it doesn't necessarily change the way you defend. The only team that I think it might is the Utah Jazz because (laughs) the Utah Jazz are so spectacularly nonchalant about like meticulous about specific iterations of Eurofouls where they're like, okay, we don't really have a chance on this one. Everybody knows we're going to do it. Um, the Nuggets are, you know, sometimes there, but the Jazz, I think, are the most. I was going to mention the Nuggets, um, specifically Jokic, and then um, Ev- just Evan Fournier with the Knicks does it all the time. <laughs> just Evan Fournier, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think those are those are fixes that they could definitely work through. Um, anything else that is striking you? I know one of the things that you and I are going to be watching closely is all these new faces in new places, including, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, James Harden's debut later on Friday. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm definitely going to be in front of my tv for that one um the race to the bottom obviously for uh you know the number one pick who you just you were at the game last night for one of the 
potential number one picks. I got one of my friends is telling me that I'm really going to like Jabari Smith, who is another potential number one pick, I think. Uh, I don't tend to do my draft homework until like a few week cram before the draft. Uh, I know you do a little bit before that because you and Nate do the podcasts and uh, you saw Chet Holmgren, who was like, apparently is like, what if Pokashevsky was good? <laughs> Holmgren... I mean, he had uh, the the box score line on the game. So I went to USF Gonzaga on Thursday night, and the the box score line for Holmgren was completely ridiculous. <laughs> he had twenty one points, fifteen rebounds, six blocks, three steals, and an assist in thirty two minutes. Which he actually, I uh, I was stunned. He sat early in the first half, and then I was like, okay, he's probably going to get that in the second half. And then Drew Timmy went out. I don't know that he had like a real sit. He, I think he sat for a little bit in the second half, but it wasn't very much. And sure, he had he he had a lot of a lot of nice moments. I mean, he had this one uh, which I'm sure was on highlight reels of he had a a coast to coast rebound drive and dunk. A big part of that was USF just not rotating to him. But I mean, the uh, uh, center having the ability to do that is certainly intriguing. What in that early indication? I, this is actually not the first time I've seen Holmgren in person because I went to a Team USA event back in 2019 where he, I think he was like 16, 17 at the time. And I I think there's a lot to like. I mean, he he ha- to me, Holmgren has offensively, he has a really nice skill set for a non-dominant center. So the idea of like, okay, you're not going to, he's you, when he gets the ball, the other team's not going to lose their marbles and like Joel Embiid or Jokic, let's say, where it's like, okay, now we need to, this is a panic situation. Like that's not right. what Holmgren does, but he, he has good judgment with the ball in his hands. He made some really nice passes, both entry passes to Timmy and passes to not cutters necessarily, but like to open guys on the, on the wing and stuff like that at a couple of dribble handoffs. I liked all that. His jump shot looks pretty smooth, not like small guy smooth, but like pretty good for a big, his free throw motion looked great. So like that's that's good but you say okay well if a guy if that's more what you're looking at if you're looking at complementary player offensively he's gonna have to be an absolute beast defensively and he absolutely has been that at times including yesterday against the university of san francisco i worry that he will be good but not elite defensively against professionals partially because he's he's rail thin like um well, that was the worry with Evan Mobley last year, right? Yeah, like but, that, but Mobley, his instincts, I think, were better at this point than Holmgren's were. Um, again, it's, you know, small sample size. I haven't watched film on Holmgren at USC yet, just the game I saw in person and, you know, like little bits and pieces here and there. And Mobley is a good example, but also remember that Mobley is primarily thriving, though he has played some center. He's primarily thriving playing the four. And yep. having another guy behind him, and Mobley is contesting shots at the rim like he's a center, like JB Bickerstaff has has given both guys the license to do so. So, and with Holmgren, like, so he gets he can get moved by thicker guys, and thicker guys are basically everyone he will be guarding. And I don't think he has. To me, he doesn't have the feet to be like a, a like a full switch guy yet maybe he can get there like i mean he's still super young dude has has some of the good mental parts i don't think his feet are bad by any stretch of the imagination so like i'm preliminarily preliminarily and this was true when i saw him you know when i saw him in in uh, team usa stuff i i i understand the appeal but i'm not all the way there yet that said i haven't seen the other guys enough to know whether i'm there on them <laughs> So I can't yeah. say like, but if I, if I can't say basically anything with any confidence about any of these guys. But the one thing I've noticed from reading like uh, mock drafts and, and like top 100s and big boards and whatnot is it, it seems to be like a very like power forward 
heavy draft. It not is. a lot of guards near the top. And not a lot of wings, which is very And not concerning. a lot of wings, exactly where I was going, which is interesting considering basically everybody wants guards and wings now. And if you're getting a big guy, you want it to be like a guy who can be the foundation of your team. So it'll be interesting to see what happens at the top of the draft, which, you know, from what I've seen, it's like, you know, three power forwards and a guard as like at the top four in the draft. Um, yeah, something, something, so. something, yeah, to that effect. I had, I had Sam Vecini on and he was kind of, t- we were talking about this duality as well. And the other thing I want to, when I watch film on Holmgren, I want to keep an eye on. So he had six blocks in this game. He was, it, it was kind of hilarious. And some of this is just college and players not being used to facing somebody like Chet Holmgren, where at times him not being a sufficient deterrent was what was leading to the blocks, where it's like, you you saw the USF guy <laughs> go up and you're like, why are you taking this shot? Like, he's right there. He's right there. That he's happened, seven feet uh, tall. It happened a lot with Nerlens Noel last year. Yes. Uh, with the and Knicks. Miles Turner has afraid. that too. Guys that are kind of longer than you think can mm-hmm. can surprise people with that. And sometimes they're and like a little skinny. Bit- Yes, skinny. Porzingis, same kind of thing. Teams right. love challenging him at the rim, but he's always had good good rim protection numbers. Yeah, and so with with Holmgren, I wonder when the kind of the nature of drivers and drives is different in the NBA than college. Also, he'll be stronger. You know, he'll have a lot of those those different elements, and I'm I'm interested. And I, but I like that he offensively, that he's coming in with the mindset and kind of the tools in the toolbox that you're looking for at 19. And so he's not going to have to learn it in the same way that a lot of these other guys have. I didn't get to watch film of Bam in college. He, I, I remember people saying that he, could, he had a good handle when he was there. And we've, of course, seen that with Miami. And so I wonder if, if that will be a benefit. I'm sure it will make coaches happier with him whoever ends up drafting him high in the draft and it'll get him on the court quicker. That's it'll sure. it'll get him on the court quicker. And I, I also think that, so he's playing with Drew Timmy who has, you know, who has his own like kind of mobility issues. And I think part of what Holmgren is dealing with, and this might be what Mark Few wants is he's kind of being pulled in two directions at once. And generally, you know, it's kind of like, do I protect the rim? Cause like at the beginning of the game, Timmy was guarding USF center and Holmgren was guarding the power forward. And it's like Holmgren's kind of doing two things things at once and I think he's uncomfortable with that and in the NBA you typically don't ask good players to do that unless they're like that's their job Timmy is their center I'm assuming I don't know anything it's, about that. it's sort of so so Timmy is he's small much smaller than Holmgren he's listed at 610 I think he's more like 69 um mm. so he's smaller than Holmgren but he's also less long and like he it's it's sort of like Timmy's the guy who can't guard anyone else, so you put him on the five, and then Holmgren, you hope, can guard someone else, so you put him on the four. Got it. Interesting. That's sort of an idea, which is which is a little bit. Well, that's a good a good thing to have in you know your four or five. It's similar, I guess, to Mobley, where he can guard either spot. Um, and if your guy can't guard the four, then you can have Holmgren do it. And if he can, then maybe you have Holmgren be more of like a backline guy. Like that's it's it's not a problem. Like it's not. I wouldn't say it's a good problem to have because it's not a problem. Um, it's a it's an asset is what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we already talked about it a little bit, but over the next couple of weeks, what teams, what players are you most interested in watching? Um, definitely the Sixers. I'm going to try to watch as much of them as possible to see what Harden and Embiid look like. Uh, if and when KD and or Simmons come back, I'm going to have to watch a bunch of the Nets. 
um, the Bulls as they get their guys back. I do want to see some of the Suns without Chris Paul. I usually try to not watch that much of teams without their star guys because, like, what am I gaining from that? Like, usually when I watch a game, what I want to do is, like, I want to learn something useful about one team or the other. Um, and, I, and I don't think I gain much from watching a team without its star player. But with the potential that Chris's injury could linger into the playoffs, I do want to watch that. Um, it's it, Basically, everything is, like, what do teams look like when they get their guys back, <laughs> for the most part? Like, what does Draymond look like when he gets back, you know? Um, do do uh, either Kawhi or Paul George come back? Do either Jamal Murray or Michael Porter come back? Like everything is about that's what I'm looking for, basically. Like who that's injured can get back on the court and what do they look like when they do? Because I think that's going to play a huge role down the stretch. Wholeheartedly agree. And I'll throw two more teams in the mix for myself. Throughout the year, Matt, mutual friend of ours, Matt Moore and I have done our tiers. And the two teams that we just can ag- I guess? Yes. Dallas? Yes. Um, Boston? Yes. So we agonized in the early part of the season, like, why isn't it working? Why aren't these teams doing well? Since January 1st, not an arbitrary, like, point that I picked. I just, it is arbitrary. I I don't, I didn't know, like, oh, this is when their hot streak started. Since January 1st, Boston plus 11.4 net rating, Dallas plus 8.1, number two and number three behind the Phoenix Suns in the league. So I want, I want to get a sense of where they are, where they're going, how much of this is real. And I'm so excited for Friday's games because not only do you have Philly, Philly in the, the Harden debut and all that, an hour later is Dallas, Utah. And that should be fun. And so you have those, and I, I don't know if Donovan Mitchell is going to play, but I, I think that the other point we're we're getting we're getting closer to this juncture, and that's I generally watch less of the really bad teams the last let's call it two weeks of the year because oftentimes their motivations are just so different that you're the to use a legal term the prejudicial versus probative value like you, you get more into the prejudicial part of it because they're just not playing with like the appropriate surrounding talent and everything else so. I will probably use the next month or so to watch more of the Rockets, of the Pistons, of the Magic. And then I'm super excited about the the Pacers. And maybe they're going to get Miles Turner back and they will buck that trend because they might just want to see what they have a little bit more. And, you know, Kevin Pritchard has some big decisions to make this offseason. Maybe they actually, like, push a little bit in the last couple weeks to see what to see it and who in the hell knows what's happening with tj warren pending 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 unrestricted free agent tj warren by the way and but so i might hold off a little bit on them especially now duarte is still dealing with this big toe issue but i'm and who knows when brogdon is going to come back either it sounds like it might be today oh really maybe he's so it was um he had a he had a, a quote that was basically like if I if on Wednesday that he's like if there was a game today I'd play so that's encouraging and they're playing OKC where Shea Gilders Alexander is back so that that could be intriguing nice. as well and so yeah those those teams toward the bottom yeah this could actually might be a stretch that I end up watching a fair amount of OKC because now you have Shea and and Giddy Giddy got the opportunity to run things a little bit more when Gilders Alexander was out but. I'm hoping that Lou Dort gets over his shoulder issue in time that we actually get to see. You know, it's not fully operational, but like the basics of of the Thunder team before Sam Presti goes full Poku. 
and <laughs> just just gets the because OKC they have I mean they have the clearest understanding of pretty much anybody in the league of how important it is to have a to really be towards the bottom of the record because the incentives in play even with lottery reform are just so severe because like if you're the last yeah you're you're not guaranteed to have a, have as high a chance of like the top top picks but you're not going to fall as far down even if they're happy with Giddy. Yeah, I mean, think about how much differently last year's draft could have gone for them. And uh, like you said, I would imagine they're happy with Giddy, but they could have had like two top six picks and instead they wound up with, what was it, like seven and like 15 or something along something those lines. Like that, yeah. And they ended up trading that second pick, which was the pick that became Shangun for the Rockets. Um, so, you know, I, I think they know that they need big swing or not necessarily big swings. They need big hits at the top of the draft um, and soon. Because at a certain point, you can't just make like four first round picks every single year. It's just it's not tenable. Agreed. And thank you so much for taking time to come on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Always appreciate it. Good times. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at 538, including the piece we just referenced. If you follow the NFL, you can read that at CBS, where he does excellent work as well. And you can follow Jared on Twitter at jadubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and then the number five. Love having him on, love getting his perspective. And I especially found our injury discussion early on notable. And I'm keeping an eye on how these teams handle these situations. And Garland having a bone bruise definitely isn't the greatest, but maybe that pushes the Cavs to be more judicious with this as they should be. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. That is super important for the show because it will always come out at different times depending on my availability and guest availability, especially coming out of the All-Star break. That's the way these things are going to work. And the single greatest thing you can do to support this show is to check out our sponsor, betonline.ag. Use that promo code CLNS50 to get your 50% welcome bonus and to tell them that you came from us. It's a huge support. So again, that's CLNS, the number five, the number zero. And you can also check out my other work. Nate and I are back full steam for Dunked on Prime. We did our awards pod, recorded that on Thursday, and we also caught up on news, a lot of important stuff to get to there. Also had a piece at The Athletic going through team by team, kind of the the big picture for the 2022 offseason now that the deadline is done. Cap space teams, who doesn't have cap space, all that fun stuff. Really useful primer for those of you who are inclined. And if you're listening to this podcast, honestly, you probably are. can also check out the NBA strategy stream. Nate and I are continuing that for every Monday when we get back to league action on a Monday and we're starting out the second second half of the season's a little bit weird to say considering everything else but we're starting that out really strong Minnesota Cleveland it's a seven o'clock eastern start for Pacific really excited about that one even with the potential absence of Darius Garland still a lot of really fascinating wrinkles defending Carl Anthony Towns and everything else if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I try to get back to people. I admit that I'm not the greatest on that, but that's why I make the promise that I'll read it. 
And that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.